Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary with me, Russell Brand. This week I spoke with Dr. Gabor Mate. Gabor Mate, if you don't know, is a Hungarian-born Canadian physician, empirically and emphatically not a psychiatrist. If you call him one, he'll throttle you on the spot, I just learned. He's got a background in family practice and a special interest in childhood development and trauma and in their potential lifelong impacts on physical and mental health, including on autoimmune disease, cancer, ADHD, addictions and a wide range of other conditions. We spoke about the psychological impact of coronavirus, the sociological impact of coronavirus, what's being revealed to us by this painful lesson. And I must say, Gabor Mate's perspective is exactly the one you need right now. Um, listen, sign up to my mailing list, russellbrand.com. Check out my YouTube videos where I'm sort of covering this peculiar global topic and extraordinary time in more detail. And uh, follow me on social media. You know how to find me. You're a grown-up. Now, let's have a look at the... And obviously, the tour's cancelled, so I'm not doing any of that for now. Or at least it's postponed. Postponed until we reorder society entirely. Did you listen to me and Amanda Palmer last week? What a woman. What a performer. What a force. Let's listen to some of the comments. Truman Everyman said, love, love, love it. And you. There's a book I wish you'd check out, Hacking Reality by Rob Nelson. Not only will we check it out, we'll get Rob Nelson on this podcast and we'll interview him along with that Wade whatever that Gabor Mate was banging on about. Tronald Dump Eats His Own Farts said... Rusty Rockets, Amanda Palmer and here Luminary. I've bought books from both of you. Love both of your way of thinking, openness and kindness. Well, I love your Twitter handle, if that was Twitter. Mandy Reen. I lost my beautiful husband to suicide 18 months ago. We need to remember death is a major part of life. Love, really, truly love, deeply, unreservedly love one another. Love yourself, love God. Life is really over in five minutes, so spend it wisely. Oh, Mandy, that's so beautiful and agonising feel very cut up about having read that, so God knows what it's like to live through it. Gabor Mate, interestingly, contributed a monologue to an event I did at the Old Vic around mental health, along with uh, Lena Dunham, contributed a piece. Um, young um, dear Scarlett uh, Curtis did a brilliant piece. Martin Freeman performed Gabor Mate's. Uh, Helen McCrory performed Lena Dunham's piece. It was an incredible night. And yeah, I really feel like I did that piece that was constructed from last words of men that had taken their own lives and the ordinariness of their experience and the sadness, the financial pressure. Oh man, oh God, I feel for you, Mandy. Um, let's dedicate this episode to your husband's memory and let's enjoy the great sympathetic sage, mystic soothsayer of our times, Dr. Gabor Mate. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful route. Yes, that's, that's, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Gabor Mate, thank you for joining me on Under the Skin. I'm very grateful that you made time. Pleasure. Thank you. Nice to be with you again. Although you don't have a great, I know you're writing a book at the moment and I'm excited to learn more about it, but you're also uh, under self-imposed house arrest, self-isolation. Is that true? It's absolutely true. And here's where my own personal subjectivity um, bumped up against my social responsibility. Because personally, I, I think the chance of me having to be exposed to anything well, on my little trip down to the U.S. was next to zero. 
But on the other hand, we're being asked as citizens to, to self-isolate if you've been down there. And I was on for one day. So I'm self-isolating. So it's an interesting me f battling my desire to be right and to have it my own way as against being a member of a society. And right now, the responsible thing to do is to follow the, the suggestions of the health authorities. So hence, I'm self-isolating for the next two weeks. What do you, th like most of us know you for your work on addiction and on mental health. With a global pande pandemic and the uh, anxiety, fear and dread that it engenders, what have you observed so far and what do you, uh, applicable therapeutic information do you have for us? Well, you know, you're asking bigger questions that my brain is maybe ready to... Uh, to uh, provide answers to but just today I was online with a group of uh, therapists that I'm training in my particular way of working and uh, two of them one from New York City and one from a uh, First Nations community here in British Columbia were saying that they're working with a highly traumatized population and amongst them the panic is just immense about this virus and uh, they're asking how can they work with this and and the first thing to recognize is, is when you're traumatized, um, your brain is affected by that. And particularly, the, if you're traumatized early in childhood, uh, the fear center in the brain, the amygdala, is much more easily triggered. So that means that people experience things in, in different ways, depending on how they were programmed in childhood. Now, the, the response isn't only to the actual facts and the actual um, realities of the spreading uh, pandemic, but it's also to people, it's a response to people's own subjectivity and the degree of fear that they're living with all their lives. And the more fear oriented they were in the first place, the more likely they are to panic right now. And you really have to address that uh, and, and recognize that, that partly what we're seeing here is a trauma response, uh, as, as well as, it, as we're seeing a genuine response to a real problem, but it's also, we're also seeing a trauma response. How uh, what kind of data is available on the impact of trauma in people's early lives? And is it a, uh, is there is it that um, I want to say is it that a binary the response? Is it that people that have experienced tra trauma in early life are generally more fearful, or is the opposite response p possible? A kind of numbness and dislocation. Well, both can happen. Uh, they're both uh, either you get you can get a heightened fear response or you can get a dissociative response where you're not even in touch with your feelings. Um, on the neurobiological level, um, early trauma really changes the brain. Uh, at least it alters the normal trajectory of brain development in such ways that, for example, that, as I said, the fear center, the amygdala, is larger and is more easily activated. Um, and also when triggering events happen, like fear happens, the prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that considers and makes decisions and makes choices and um, re responds flexibly to situations, it kind of goes offline. So that we're actually functioning from their emotions rather than their, their, their thinking parts of their brain. Now we see this in society all the time in all realms. I imagine it's being... Uh, these days, uh, 
very generalized as a result of the not just the virus but also the how can I put this the virus has gone viral you know on, on social media not only is it a virus it's also gone viral and uh, the lancet which is a british medical journal as you know had an article about how to fight an infodemic so not just we don't just have an epidemic we have an infodemic and uh if i can quote this the uh the the director general of the of, of the world health organization actually said that we're not just fighting an epidemic we're fighting an infodemic he said this in uh in the middle of february at a conference in 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 germany wow this is there's nothing in living like the living memory like a global event of this nature is there like it's for like 9/11 i mean it's it's difficult to sort of quantify because as you've said like when I look at, I've never known anything so personal and so global, something that affects me on a personal level of, oh, how's this going to affect me financially? How's this going to affect my ability to travel? And then what's going to happen to all of society and the world and everywhere you go and everyone you talk to, if, you do, if you're not moving around, like who, what, they're all being impacted and affected. It seems like a unique event. And as you say, my personal fears are not, oh, no, I might get this virus. They're much more... It's the infrastructure that uh, supports our society, which I've spent a long time saying is a construct and is conceptual and is based on sort of systems, beliefs and hierarchies that are sustained through our kind of through subjugation, the, the, they are now being shaken. And it's a, an interesting and um, I would say really frightening thing. Well, so, yes, all that. But let me put in some broader context here. So first of all, the kind of fears around disease that we're having now all over the world, a lot of people in the world have lived with them chronically. We just don't think of them because they because we're not threatened the same way as they are. Hmm. You know, like diarrhea kills tens and hundreds of thousands of kids every year, but not in the Western countries. So partly it's out of sight, out of mind, you know. So that's one thing we have to put into context is that even when you said 9-11, well, 9-11, that was a big shock to the United States because all of a sudden 3,000 people died in one shocking event, terrible event. But it's not such unusual um, event in the lives of many people around the world, when we are bombed by the, the United States or Britain or whoever is bombing them, a lot more people have died, you know. But but it's 9/11 that we remember because it happened in our in our case in the Western world, in 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 North America. So partly it's again it's it's when it happens to us that's when we become aware of it, you know. So that's one thing I want to point out. The other thing I want to point out is, um, what if I said to you? That, that there was a preventable condition that kills 800,000 people in Europe every year, 15,000 in Canada, and about 8 million a year, 8 million people around the world every year. What if I said to you there was such a condition? I would say we should prevent it. Well, it, it's, uh, it's air pollution, okay? So, the, I mean, I've just given you the actual statistics. So, I'm not saying we shouldn't be concerned about the virus. But, but one of the lessons for me in this virus is 
how easy it is for easy how naturally easy it is for to recognize a threat when it's all of a sudden and it's strange but in the meantime we're ignoring chronic health issues that are killing millions of people in our societies every year and what does that say about our culture I think what it says is, as you've already explained, that it's outside, out of mind. If something doesn't penetrate our awareness or if we can operate uh, without being impeded by it, we'll happily do so. But I also think that the sort of socioeconomic impact of coronavirus has meant that whether or not you're affected medically or biologically by the condition, you are affected psychologically. Also, I think it's tapped into a deep and archetypal fear that we have that we are not in control of reality because we are not in control of reality. And I'm minded of the Osho quote of all things, uh, like, you know, what is what is society society is just a clearing in the forest and i feel like we we can suddenly feel oh no like you know not just in the in the sort of biological in the botanical world could the vines and plants reclaim us but in the microbiological world there are invisible forces that a weight that can be unloaded uh, weaponized at any moment and that we are for me personally even as a man dedicated to recovery and dedicated to personal awakening and participating in awakening however I can, I recognize, you know, the personal experience of going to a supermarket and seeing empty shelves had a foreboding, like a sort of a visceral sense of foreboding that I didn't, I didn't anticipate. You know, I'm out here in a remote, relatively remote part of Australia and I'm fortunate enough to be with my family, but you know, to have the the uncertainty that we can, you know, we consistently live with uncertainty, as you have explained, we consistently live with disease. But the idea that our structures and systems are impermanent, that they require sort of, they're faith-based systems, economics and air travel even, you know, they're asking for bailouts for the airline companies in, in the UK. You know, all of these things are held together by faith and belief. And when that is shaken, our reality is shaken. Now, when I look at this optimistically, I see it as a great opportunity for reordering. And, you know, the, the level of uncertainty about how long this may endure means, you know, we're not doing three months, six months, nine months, who knows when people will be able to freely travel, freely move, if ever again. And, but, and and the, the thing, the, the silver lining is that potentially people will start to consider different ways of living that are more harmonious and connected to nature. Um, but it, it's very interesting, I suppose, because I'm affected uh, like egoically as an individual. Like, oh, no, when can I go back to England? How do I go back to England? How will this personally impact me? And also, what does this mean for the reordering of civilization? Well, um, one thing that arose for me as you were speaking was a. Uh, um, something that a Buddhist teacher said once. Uh, what happened was that I was supposed to go and t- give a talk on addiction at this particular town here in British Columbia, but my airplane didn't make it. Uh, they had to turn it around because it's a mechanical issue. So there were 300 people waiting at this church hall for me to give this talk on addiction, but I didn't show up. But in the in the audience waiting for me to come was a Buddhist um, a monk. So they sort of recruited him to give a talk on a Buddhist view of addiction. And, uh, and so I got, a, I got a recording of the talk, and it was really great. And, uh, and but what he said was that in the West, we're always saying, panic, panic, everything is out of control. We're in the Buddhist uh, world, they say, relax, everything is out of control. Wow. So, so one of the teachings that maybe we could learn is precisely that 
whether you're Buddhist or not, just the idea of impermanence uh, and everything changes and we're not in control and how to be with whatever happens, how to be with the present moment regardless of what happens. I mean, that's what, that'd be a huge, like every, every crisis like this, as the Chinese say, a crisis is a combination of danger and opportunity, you know that. And, and so that in the crisis, there's always danger, but there's always an opportunity. So like you, I'm actually wondering, will this perhaps function as a teaching moment for a lot of humanity? I'm not that optimistic that it will, uh, <laughs> it's, but it's certainly a possibility. It's certainly a potential, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and of course, the other thing is, um, doesn't it just clarify your values? Like, I'm, don't, 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 all of us, don't we all at this point realize what's really important in life? I mean, hasn't that been shocked into us by this um, pandemic? Uh, that all of a sudden things that we thought were so important, mm, what is really important, you know? So it is a possible learning moment question is will we take that opportunity or not and i think the system militates against us doing so they'll want to go they'll want us to go back to our ordinary narrow individualistic um disassociated isolated mode of thinking that's what that's how the system survives so whether or not we can transcend that we'll see in my optimism i imagine that uh that this, if if you could see this through some kind of thermal lens, you would see across the world a kind of stirring, a, a global recognition of the principles you've described. Of oh, what's important to me is the people I love, community, having access to amenities and resources, and I live in a system that doesn't allow that or permit that and thinking about it I don't want to do my job and travel to all these places and do these things or either the only reason I'm doing these jobs is to participate in an economic system that will dispatch me very very quickly while propping up banks and airlines it you know there's no doubt that as you you know using the apposite Chinese definition that like opportunity is part of this. Gabor, I wondered often when speaking with you and listening to you, uh, what you and because of the brilliant um, essay you wrote that um, Martin Freeman read at the event I did at the Old Vic on the nature of, um, you know, sort of mental health, suicide and addiction, like that how your, what you can extrapolate from your work with individuals uh, what what from your work with individuals could be mapped onto sociological models in terms of disconnection, isolation, the impacts of trauma, and also the possibility of recovery? I know that's a big question, but you know we've got time. Mm-hmm. Well, look, I'd love to answer that question, but, but there's just a point I really would like to make, totally unrelated to what you just said. Oh, great! Why don't you just why don't you just sing a song? <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I'll come back to your question. Just just to note something. So that in January, the, the World Health Organization asked uh, the donor countries for $675 million so that the agency could respond to the virus. Okay, they asked for $675 million in January. You know how much they received from all the wealthy countries? $54 million. Mm-hmm. So even... In responding to this virus, what is our system doing? You know, like we can't even in the face of this. 
we're still being so um when i say we i mean the the, the people that make the decisions with, with our money they're being so short-sighted you know so i, I know that's not what you asked me but i just I had that fact in front of me and I wanted to throw it in. It's, it's You do what you like, Gabor Mate. I don't, when I do an interview with you, I don't imagine for a moment that I will be in charge of how it goes. Yes, it's like, it, it, even like when um, the, the rhetoric that's emerging from political leaders often indicates that, as we have known, the priority of the system is self-preservation and all else subsequent to that. You know, we naively assume or at least hope that these systems of governance exist in the most primitive form of social contract we exchange taxes in for protection for protection from the sovereign or from the state but we can see when in the revelation of crisis that what is genuinely important is that the system is able to withstand the shock of this crisis and yeah and even as recently as january when it was dislocated and in country you know non-western countries we were willing to go for the gamble of not making substantial donations right now to come back to your brilliant question before if you can remember it yeah yeah i remember it yeah um so you're asking about working with traumatized people, addicted people, what can I extrapolate from that to social transformation, social dislocation and so on? All right, you do remember it. Yeah, so the, so the first thing is uh, that the two are not separate. So that, 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 that the addiction and the, I have a very brilliant friend, uh, Bruce Alexander who has written the second best book on addiction, uh, which is called, uh, uh, what's it called now? Oh God. Good. I'm glad you've forgotten that. We'll look it up. What is it? Bruce Alexander, book on addiction. It's, 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 but it's about dislocation. Um, and it's, he's saying that addiction is a sign of um, social, dis- not just a sign, it's an outcome. It's called the globalization of addiction, a study in the poverty of the spirit. That's what it's called. Okay. And as I said, it's the second most important book ever written on addiction. And I say that with full modesty, you know, because <laughs> I'm forgetting that you wrote one, too. <laughs> You're very, very funny. You're very, very funny. Listen, I'll do the jokes. You do the therapy. I don't tell people how to run their life. Oh, no, I do tell people how to do it. I, I, got, I, I got my job description. Thank you. <laughs> uh, so Bruce is saying that addiction is a is a marker of social dislocation to start with. So he points out, for example, that the gin craze in, 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 in Britain, in England, in the 17th century, happened as a result. There's always been drinking and drunkenness, but there wasn't alcoholism on a social scale until the, in order to shuttle people into these satanic mills, as um, Blake put it, into the factories, they closed the commons and people were dislocated. They have to leave their homeland. They leave their homes. They have to leave their villages. They have to move into the cities. They dislocated them socially and economically, and that's what gave rise to the to the to the gin craze. So he said he makes the same argument globally, and we can see it, like in China, where they've they've pushed people off the land into the cities in a couple of decades. Now they have a huge addiction problem. So that 
that individual dislocation is a marker of social dislocation. So the, the one is not to be separated from the other. And then, but in terms of what we can learn from it, though, is that, um, well, what can we learn from it? What, what can I extrapolate from the personal to the social? It's, it's that it's that when individuals learn the sources of their problem, and instead of being um, in denial about it and, and getting over the shame of acknowledging their own behavior and their own dysfunctions, and they learn that they didn't do this deliberately, but that this is a defensive, this is a protective, this is a pain relieving mechanism on their part. And, not, and, and, they, and if they open themselves humbly, as you talk about the 12 steps, um, they can actually transform. Well, th th that would also be true on a social level. What, what if as a society we actually admitted all our, our dysfunctions? What if we said this doesn't work, this doesn't work? What if we stop being in denial? I mean, somebody's written a book called uh, the, fourth person, the Fourth Person Book on Addiction. It's called When Society is an Addict. When society is an addict. So what if we apply the same kind of thinking to the social level? Okay, what's really going on? Let's not, do, let's, not, let's not deny it anymore. Let's acknowledge that there's poverty, there's inequality, there's dislocation, there's discrimination, that there's oppression, there's prejudice against certain genders, certain colors of people, certain classes of people. What if we actually acknowledged all that as a society? And instead of shaming ourselves for it, we said, okay, well, how do we wish to move forward? So, and when you actually look at when revolutions happen, if you look at the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or an individual addict, it's when things get intolerable. At a certain point, things get intolerable. And then now I'm, I'm, I know that revolutions have a bad name because they've had some pretty um, negative outcomes in places, but that's just the nature of history. But the point is, they always happen when people finally get that something is intolerable and they can't keep on going in the old way anymore. Now, nobody can make that happen, but it's when, and I think from that point of view, um, what we've seen in Western society, certainly in the last four or five years, people are asking a lot more questions about the nature of this society, about the fundamental, fundamental assumptions of this society. And so this virus can also maybe contribute to that questioning. Like, like, like for example, when you look at the, the, vir the response to the virus, what was it? It was denial everywhere it was happening. Huh. In, China, in China, there was denial. Had there not been the denial in China, there might not have been a huge epidemic. When the doctors first spoke the truth about it, they were, they were shut down, they were, they were silenced. You know, and the same thing happened um, in Iran first. And uh, originally, although Koreans have done a lot better, but there was that initial response. So what if we stop being a society in denial? Even this viral outbreak would have been different. I don't know. Did I did I pontificate enough on that one? <laughs> Could you end all of your announcements with that statement? Um, but yes, I think you did. That was very, very beautiful. Very beautifully put. Thank you. Thank you very much. I, I can see that a culminative theme of 
opening awareness and being willing to let go. I like what you said before about that Buddhist monk saying, oh, relax, there's chaos. I suppose like those of us that have experienced mental health issues and addiction and trauma and are trying to make peace with it can perhaps apply the learning we've received with the teaching we've received in this in this new reality there's there is so much that can be applied gabor what is it that you are uh, exploring in your new book if you don't mind me asking sure um so the the book is entitled well it's very apropos to what we've been talking about the the, the book is entitled the myth of normal illness and health and an insane culture and uh what i'm arguing is that um in this society, mental and physical illness are not abnormalities, but they're normal responses to abnormal situations. And when I say abnormal situations, I mean situations that don't meet human needs. We have this myth of progress that some of you made this great progress in uh, in, um, in in economics and industry, and which is all true. But we've made no progress in terms of human happiness and connectedness and joy and aliveness. In fact, we've regressed. And we've done that because the environment in which we live doesn't meet our real needs. So my, my, what I'm arguing is that normal is a myth in this culture. And the people that are considered abnormal often manifest the real truth about the system. And that disease itself is a normal response to a, a fundamentally um, insane um, situation. So that's what I'm. So I'm looking at physical health, mental health, addictions. Um, I'm looking at the interconnections, the um, interconnections between individuals and 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 how society affects the the genetic functioning of individuals. I mean that that blows the mind. That social conditions actually affect the genetic functioning of individuals. I mean how? Oh. Um, by um, by affecting which genes are turned on and off. Okay, can you explain that? That's amazing. Well, there's so much amazing new information now, but but um, we, there's this myth in this society. I mean, here's another example of a social myth that genes determine so much, but but they don't, like illness and mental illness and so on, but they don't. Because genes are turned on and off by the environment. Genes themselves are inert. They have to be signaled by the environment to be activated. And certain conditions will trigger certain genes, and other conditions will turn on different genes. What type of what what kind of genes are being triggered by the society we live in? What kind of what what consistent patterns? Fear-based, desire-based. Well, uh, w women who are. Um, stress during their pregnancy, their children's genes that deal with stress response will be activated in a different way. So you mentioned 9-11. Well, in 9-11, women, there was a study that showed that women who were pregnant during 9-11 and suffered PTSD as a result, their children at one year of age had abnormal stress hormone levels wow. because the genes had been turned on differently. So that's just a small example. So what I'm saying is, I'm also writing about this amazing, beautiful interconnection between all of us and, and the world that we live in. And uh, 
The question is how to make that work, how to make that work for us rather than against us. Yes, in a sense, the story that you've just told demonstrates the fallacy of separation. There is a cultural event, i.e. 9-11. There is an individual event, an, an individual woman's pregnancy. There is a genetic event, the traumatization of the child and the hormonal and neurological and biochemical impact of that. In a sense, it's only the limitations of our senses and the way that we categorize information that it would even seek to see them as separate rather than a continuum. And once we acknowledge that continuum, and I would say a correlative of that is a kind of obligation to or, or oneness and to promote value systems in the service of that oneness as opposed to the systems of separation. Well, uh when you said continuum, I started looking around because I have a book on my shelf. I just can't see it at the moment, but I was reading it a couple of days ago. It's called The Continuum Concept. <gasps> and um, and she's an, it was an American writer who, who, who lived with Aboriginal communities in the rainforest. They don't have this separation. They don't have this separation. They have a complete sense of continuum, that they're part of the continuum of nature. And as a result, they live very differently, they raise their kids very differently, and they're a lot happier than we are. You know, so that, uh, it's a beautiful book, it's by Gene Leadloff, it's called The Continuum Concept, and uh, it's, it, it, it was published in the 70s, but the message is more urgent now than ever. If you have a look um, where I'm, obviously people listening to this won't be able to see it, but we're doing, obviously, I'm in Australia, and there's a piece of uh, Aboriginal art on the wall there, apparently it's of a mountain, and when I saw it, I said to uh, Danny, whose house this is, said, oh, like I'd seen a piece recently similar, possibly even by the same artist. And I said, oh, it's like they're painting the underlying energy systems that support, withstand, uh, withhold and sustain reality as we understand it. That there is a sort of an interconnectivity that can't be seen with the eyes, but can perhaps be seen with the mind. And in some recent uh, meditative experiences that I've had, Gabor, I've started doing this uh, kundalini, I suppose, breath exercise um, that sort of involves, you know, dragon breath or breath of fire and then sort of um, like while crouched and then sort of sitting up rapidly with an inhalation and holding the lower abdomen. abdomen. And I suppose from a material perspective, it's like causing hyperventilation. But from a spiritual perspective, there's a moment where the individual mind, my individual mind, abates. Like the ongoing narrative of my continual thinking is arrested and I feel and experience underneath it an ulterior consciousness that is just as present as, oh, I'm Russell, I want this, oh no, coronavirus, oh, I like Gabor Mate, oh, look, he's taking the piss. You know, it's as real as that, it's as real as that. And I feel like it's as sort of as present as that, but inaccessible to me because of, well, look at you saying the type of genes, the type of systems that are being turned on and promoted. If you live a life like I imagine, you know, the ancestors of this artist did in this country, Australia, where you are connected to nature, where you don't see yourself as separate from nature, where you see yourself, yeah, as in the Buddhist or Hindu analogy as waves on one ocean, perhaps you paint the world in that way, that the, the, the light and vibrations that enter our sensory systems reformed in our consciousness, demonstrable of oneness, not separateness, uh, and it, a, a, a 
inspiring connection rather than commodification. Well, absolutely. And uh, when you mentioned, when you show the art, so I've been, as you know, I've worked with the plant ayahuasca in, 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 in South America. And when you look at the, the art that the, the Aboriginal or the, the native people create from the ayahuasca visions, it's exactly the energy fields. It's not representational of, um, of concrete objects or people. It's, it, they're painting energy or they're weaving energy into their, into their rugs or into their wall hangings, you know, and it's this underlying unifying energy that they're painting. So absolutely. And as far as what you said about that breathing exercise, I once did the breath exercise once like that. And it was fascinating. And this shows you how fragile and um, arbitrary our, view, our, 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 our experience of the world is because I did this breathing exercise, which slightly changed the chemistry of my blood. And all of a sudden my ego shrank to this little creature standing on the sidelines in this huge world and it wasn't front and center anymore so i just experienced myself as totally different all it took was a slight change in my blood chemistry so mm. let's not take ourselves that seriously you know we're, we're just in a certain state if we're in a slightly different state we'd be in the same reality externally but we wouldn't be experiencing the same reality so it, it, it our whole experience of reality is so arbitrary you know, and, and it's so context driven. And uh, yes. of course, that's what all the spiritual teachers are trying to tell us, isn't it? Yes. And it's like it's only constant within the context of a very sort of parochial understanding, even in terms of scale, the world, the suddenly, well, not suddenly, but the particularly relevant world of microbiology, the the world of cosmology i was reading a little about quantum physics and the realm of possibility and i can sort of see in the visual mathematics of these geometric energy paintings a kind of intuitive non-intellectual understanding of wave particle relationship a kind of realm of constant possibility yeah constant possibility constant paradox and and the capacity to handle um because i'm writing this book i'm reading a lot about uh, what can i say origins you know human origins so there's a wonderful um anthropologist geographer ethnobotanist called wade davis who's who's from british columbia by the way he's a guy you want to have on your podcast sometimes he's absolutely wade, wade davis. he's absolutely amazing and he's written uh, he was chief geographer for National Geographic. He's traveled all over the world. He's written, he, reads, he writes amazingly about his travels with peoples in the South Pacific or in Northern British Columbia, or deep in, you know, uh, deep in, in Latin America. He's just a real humanist and, and, uh, and, and, and an advocate for the connection between everything, you know. And he talks about his experience of these Aboriginal people who, who are quite capable of much more than we are of holding several realities in their minds at the same time. <sighs> they just live in an alternate universe. And we think we've got it all. We don't. We have a very narrow um, so a swath of it. It's just in our arrogance that we, we think we know it all. This reality that they that um, according to the, the um, geographer that they inhabit how, how can you conceptualize that for us? A psychedelic reality, a, a, a different frequency of consciousness? What, what is it? 
you know, uh, I'd be giving it to you secondhand. And um, I, I really can't say that I fully understood it myself, but I did understand that they're much more capacious in their ability to hold different realities. I've... They don't insist on their uh, one reality. And um, it's not necessarily psychedelic. Like this doesn't come out of this. For the people that he's talking about in this case, he knows very much about psychedelics because he's he studied it in Latin America. But but in this case, he's not talking about a psychedelic reality. He's talking about just how these people actually experience reality because of their 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 their, their continuum, their absolute connection to everything. Yes, I was struck then, Gabo, by what you were saying, by the, my personal sense that the, the, the work that you do with addicts and my personal experience of addiction is somewhat um, sourced from a desire to find that connection that indigenous people have between nature or nature's the state of reality and states of consciousness when you are consistently trying to chemically amend your state as you argue and often agree through trauma is an attempt to sort of reach beyond to once again reconnect with an untainted untainted level of reality which i think our species requires and possibly for hundreds of thousands of years lived in harmony with and only for 10,000 years and 2,000 years and then the last 200 years been more and more remote from more and more extracted from well absolutely if you actually look at human evolution are um, the first um, homonyms or humans, I think, have been on the earth for two million years. And uh, and our own species, uh, Homo sapiens, have been around for 200,000 years, maybe. And for all of those two million years, and virtually all of those 200,000 years, we lived in small band hunter-gatherer groups. So that's where our nervous system developed. That's mm. where our sense of connection with the universe developed. That's where our oneness was not just a spiritual concept. It was actually a necessary way of life. So when you read uh, Wade Davis, for example, on the Pacific Islanders, and uh, Micronesia and Micronesia, you know how they navigated across thousands of miles of oceans without any kind of instruments? When when the, when it, when here in the West, we were the the, 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 the explorers were still having to hug the continents because they because they didn't know the the um, latitude yet, but they didn't know longitude yet, so they they, they couldn't travel into the open ocean. Um, these people could travel without any instruments at all, thousands of miles or kilometers across oceans, finding small little islands unerringly by knowing the stars, where the sun sets and when it arose, which, wind, which directions were the winds coming from, the, the movement of the water, the deep movement of the undercurrent, and the surface movement of the waves, and the ripples of the little waves, in which way this fish was swimming, and which was that fish swimming, which way was this bird flying, which way was that other species of bird flying. These would all tell them where land was, where they were, and it's not that they considered all these things separately. The navigators had to function like a computer that computes all these things at the same time. And then they would know how to travel and how to navigate in the dark. 
you know so that degree of sensitivity and that degree of connection that's our birthright that's how we evolved as human beings and we we can't even understand it let alone uh be in touch with it that's so beautiful when you say that i feel a kind of a, a nostalgia a kind of like a pain that uh, we have become dislocated from reality and that I've outsourced everything to, to, to my telephone and to transportation and communication systems. And as you're always clear to point out, technology, medicine, science have delivered so many beautiful advances. But as long as those advances live within a faith-based conceptual system global corporate capitalism then they can't be used harmoniously with the uh, the ideologies that are more in alignment with our evolution and our evolution is in a sense way another way of saying our nature and that's not a way of saying nature to discriminate between different types of people or different types of sexuality or different types of identification but of saying that there is a oneness between humanity and even beyond humanity nature herself wanting to express this oneness that there that birds and oceans and waves and winds are moving in concert and if we're if we are in tune with our own deep intelligence and deep nature then we can understand the notes and melodies of nature and we can harmonize with it that wasn't a bad extended metaphor was it Gabo? yeah so so at least to those of us here in the west who are totally cut off from that um we can at least recognize that we're cut off you know, let's at least have the nostalgia. <laughs> let's at least have that longing. Let's at least have that pain of loss, you know, instead of believing that we've got all the answers and we're so on top of it. You know, oh, so man. there's no way that there's nothing you and I can do. Well, that's not true. Well, I'll say this categorically. There's nothing you and I can do to become great navigators of the Pacific Ocean, okay, in the way that I've just described. Uh, too late for us at this point. But at least we can recognize, yeah, sorry. I know I've just ruined your life's ambition. But 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 uh, at least we can recognize what we've lost, right? And 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 we can we can recognize what that's cost us. And we can ask ourselves, well if that's the case, what is it about a way of life that supports some reconnection? And what is about our way of life that promotes further disconnection? At least we can do that. Amazing. To bring our conversation to a conclusion, let's um, perhaps revisit once again our current global situation. You there in isolation in Canada, me here uh, stranded in Australia, though I could travel back to England practically, but it seems like... i tell you how it's felt for me. Uh, Gabor is like while touring I've like been you know like you know I heard that there was a confirmed case of coronavirus in the venue I was due to performing in Perth and then New Zealand have you know got it under control and been pretty rapid in their response to the situation but I felt like I'm not traveling to New Zealand I'm not leaving my family here and going to New Zealand during this time of such uncertainty and the day after I made that decision New Zealand did 14 days of self-isolation meaning I wouldn't be able to do shows anyway I wouldn't be able, like it all just would have all just collapsed anyway and now 
I suppose I always like to use you because of your ability, skill and background. And the fact is that I'm like a drug addict, like you've been treating all your life. I always think I can't end a conversation without getting some actual personal therapy from you. So what I feel like is I feel like, you know, almost guilty about the kind of selfish feelings, uh, uh, like somewhat like as a a father and as a husband, I'm obligated to make some uh, sort of assertive choices for my wife and kids and somewhat you know like well massively disempowered by the reality of this situation uh it doesn't make me i'm not experiencing any sort of desire to act out like i don't it doesn't make me want to use drugs or act out sexually or any of those kind of things but i do feel like a sense of uh like a sort of gentle despair some obsessive reading and uncertainty how do you think that, how does that fit into your understanding of addicts and have you got any free therapy? Well, first of all, I just want to say that I, I, uh, we talked earlier tonight and I interviewed you for my book and I introduced you to my wife. And uh, I want to say that if you're this position where you're the man of the house, you have to make decisions on behalf of your wife and kids, uh, you're in a different marriage that I'm in, let me tell you. Because... <laughs> No such decision making devolves on my shoulders. <laughs> if, I try to, if I try to arrogate that to myself, I hear about it. <laughs> so you might want to talk to your wife about that one. But 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 in terms of the, what is the guilt about? What are you what are you accusing yourself of? Oh, like that my self interest. In what sense? Like that. Well, I'm thinking what is best for me, what is best for my family, not thinking oh, how can I be useful what is the best thing i can do to be of service to my higher ideals oh well first of all um uh, if if i was your child what would i want what would i need you to do protect and absolutely do what's best for the child without any other consideration absolutely yeah now um like um so, so, so there's nothing to be so guilty about. I mean, why is that a, an occasion for guilt? You know, you know, and and I would have to say, if I was doing therapy with you, here's what I would ask you: uh, When you feel the guilt, where in your body do you feel it? Ab- lower abdomen, left. Okay, now that's where it shows up, right? Yeah. And so there's a certain feeling there. How familiar is that feeling to you? Very. Okay, was it there before you had a kid? Yes. It's been there with you for a long time. That's got nothing yeah. to do with you. That has nothing to do with your child. It has nothing to do with the present situation. That's just stuff you've been carrying all your life. And right now, it's applying itself to the current situation, but it has nothing to do with the current situation. It's, it's, it, that we, could, we could go into the reasons, but, but you already told me the reasons why you feel guilty. Uh, in our previous conversation and if you want me to tell you what you told me i'll i'll give that i'll give that to you right now but it's up to you yeah all right you told me that your mother was very sick when you were a kid yes whose fault do you suppose that was well there was occasions where i thought it was mine yeah as a as a young child you can only make it your own fault because kids take everything personally so that your mother's suffering you must have caused it. Now, you understand, I'm not saying that you did cause it. I'm saying that as a child, this is the only way you could experience it. Because that's how kids experience the world. They think it's all about them. Mm. So that the guilt that you're feeling now is just the old guilt in a new 
guys. That's all it is. Ah, <sighs> that's good. All right, I can uh, I can let that go. We may not have solved coronavirus, but we've made me feel a bit better. <laughs> and isn't that the most important thing? Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, and now, of course, look, you know, so if, however, if you can think of some way to be socially useful uh, uh, in, in the face of this virus, then you have a decision to make, you know, at some point, not out of guilt, just out of choice as a free person. Am I going to go engage in, maybe I'm going to go out in the community and serve food to people or what? And that, that might expose me to the virus, which I might bring home to my family, you know? The, the, that's not guilt one way or the other you just decide out of a free choice as okay this is what i'm going to do and there's no right answer to that one mm. but i would say that as a father um your natural instinct will be to protect your family and that's not a, that's not a cause for guilt that's a cause for celebration really mm, thank you do you think that uh, our current leaders i'm talking about sort of i guess you know anglophonic countries because that's what i know the most about are um we've discussed this somewhat before but not in relation to this present situation exhibiting and working through their own trauma and belief systems in the way they participate in governance well let me just i happen to have a a quote about that here hold on a second um You've got a lot of quotes there on that desk. It's almost as if you're a professional doctor. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, here's, here's Donald Trump, okay? I mean, Trump is too easy on a mark. I mean, he's, it's, it's almost like he, he, he's a, you can't parody him. He's his own parody, you know? Uh, but it, and I, You're going to turn your phone off, I mean. That comes out of deep trauma. But here's what he said about the virus, he said. <laughs> Uh, the virus will not have a chance against us because we had put in place the most aggressive and comprehensive effort to confront a foreign virus in modern history. Oh, my God, that's so brilliant. He can't let go of anything. Like, everything is, is just an opportunity for him to puff himself up. That's amazing. And, and to other the other, a foreign virus. Yeah, it's got xenophobia in it. They should pass a law that only American viruses are allowed in the United States. <laughs> this is an American virus. It was brought on by capitalism. It's obesity. Thank you. Thank you, obesity. <laughs> well, and speaking of obesity, to go back to something I said earlier, probably half a million Americans will die this year because of conditions related to obesity. And that's far more serious than this virus. Now, again, I'm not arguing that the virus should be ignored. But I'm saying that there's far more threats to health that this culture and society completely ignores. And that is that has to be factored in. That's a very important observation. And I suppose also serves to highlight that, in a sense, much of the severity we're experiencing as a result of coronavirus is, the, is its impact on our systems as opposed to its impact on humanity whilst its impact on humanity is very severe its impact on economics transportation global capitalism you know as an impact that obviously obesity and the other example you used earlier diarrhea don't have we can tolerate and bear obesity and diarrhea these are the addictions of our way of the consequences of our way of life but this one could interrupt it no on the contrary obesity actually um uh, feeds the system because it sells product it 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 uh, 
um, as, as you know, the food companies actually work out with scientific precision which combination of sugar and salt will be most addictive to people. They have scientists just for that purpose. This is not new. I'm, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. It's not a conspiracy theory. It's a conspiracy reality. They actually conspire to figure out the sweet spot, which is the point which will release the most endorphins and dopamine in the brain. So people will buy this product, you know. And of course, well, like you know what? I'll talk to you about obesity when I hope to visit you on my book tour. But but I'm saying that obesity is not that we ignore it. Actually, we we foment it. So in the United States, particularly, something like 40, 50% of the adult population has got obesity now. That's incredible. Which, by the way, as I heard one infectious disease specialist make the point, that makes more people prone, more prone to be affected by the virus more heavily. Because it interferes with the, you know, obesity interferes with immunity, which makes you more prone to fall ill um, when, uh, when the virus strikes you. So that even there, there's a connection. It's all connected. It's all interconnected. Wow, like the waves and the birds and the winds. We have to learn to read our new conditions. Gabor, thank you so much, man. It's been wonderful having this conversation with you. I, I find you a wonderful and illuminating teacher. I always get so much from it when we communicate, not to mention the free therapy. I'm grateful for it all. <laughs> well, it, it, I tell you, I love, um, I love playing with you. Thank you, thank you. Because I, because I, lo I love, like like the first podcast we did, um, people were commenting on how much they loved it, and I just the the play, you know, because your mind just covers so much and so rapidly, and it goes to all these different corners and 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 um, fields of reality, and I love following you there, and I, I love trying to keep, I love trying to keep keep up with you, you know. So I, I just it's I I could do this every day. Oh, Gabor Mate. Well, thank you. That that might be our new reality. Thank you very much, Gabor, Gabor Mate. Take care. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Under the Skin from Luminary Media with Dr. Gabor Mate. Let me know what you thought of it on Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets, hashtag Under the Skin. Sign up to my mailing list at russellbrand.com to get told about what gigs I'm cancelling this week and uh, for us to stay connected. Check out the YouTube videos. They're improving. And... Yeah, just, I mean, enjoy these podcasts while you're indoors continually washing your hands. This is my only advice to you wherever you are on this increasingly crazy planet. But Dr. Gabor Mate had some wise contextualizing uh, words of rationalism, such as you would expect from such a brilliant man who straddles the divide. Let's speak to you next week. We'll be, uh, we've got another fantastic guest. I won't confirm it yet because we don't know the order that we'll release these podcasts in yet, but we've got some great guests lined up for you. Thanks for joining me on Luminary Media.